Obsassanacs, Snacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sass Snack Files. This week, I'm discussing 606, The World Turned Upside Down. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sass Snack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sass Snack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 7 and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 6, Episode 6, The World Turned Upside Down. All right, 606, The World Turned Upside Down. This was written by Tony Graffia. She's one of my favorite writers. But honestly, I feel like she was given a long road to hoe with this episode. There was a lot of ground that had to be covered. I don't know that that did this episode any favors, honestly. I mean, I feel like it was a very well-written episode. A lot of artistry was involved, lots of through lines and themes and bookends. I really appreciated the craft put into writing this episode, but at the same time, I do feel like it should have really been two episodes. I think that the dysentery outbreak should have been one episode, and Malva's accusation and the fallout from that should have been another episode. I think that would have given our characters a lot more room to breathe. I think it would have given our plot a lot more time to develop. And overall, I just think that it would have gone down better with the audience As a book reader, I knew it was coming and I had time to process it. But if you are having all of this thrown at you like one thing after another, yeah, it gives a lot of credence to why the episode is titled The World Turned Upside Down because that's literally how you feel after watching this episode. But at the same time, there's just so much happening and all you want to do is kind of see how everybody's doing with it. The dysentery epidemic just flew by. I I feel like it was over in like 10 minutes and that's including the credits. That would have been the perfect time to really get into some of our main characters' heads. In the books, we got that a little bit. And there is a great line where Roger, after the fact, is telling Claire kind of what happened. He was talking to Jamie and trying to comfort him And, you know, prepare him and talk about how even if the worst should happen, at least Claire would be with God or whatever. And Jamie is just flat out like, God is not going to take my wife. How dare you even suggest such a thing? And was just kind of so off his head with grief. And I think that would have been some fantastic material to give Sam. And then we've got how much Roger is struggling with it, how much Bree is struggling with it. Not to mention, it gives us plenty of room to kind of see the bond between Claire and Malva develop as we see how they kind of attack this epidemic head on. I just think it would have worked a lot better and made the impact of the second half of this episode so much stronger if we had that background information. So that's kind of where I'm coming from on that. But there's a great line after the McNeils are found, 
and we have the credits going and then we come back and Claire has found the amoeba that is causing the amoebic dysentery that's crashing through the ridge full force like a tsunami. And Jamie actually is the one to reference Roger's sermon when he says, and the weak shall confound the mighty. And that got me to thinking, having Roger's sermon at the very beginning of this episode is kind of like a little prologue to this episode. It's so beautifully written, and it points to so many different situations that we will see throughout the episode. So I want to read it kind of before we get deep into this episode. It says, God does not require brilliance or power or nobility for us to be true believers. More often than not, those are the very things that keep us from trusting the Lord. That is why God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak to confound the mighty, and what is low in the world to bring to nothing things that are. So this whole episode is about constantly being surprised about these seemingly innocent things that are lurking in the grass, and then they end up causing these massive moments of chaos. And I feel like that is really kind of what Roger's message is foreshadowing. He doesn't mean it that way, but we can see the sinister undercurrent, especially on a rewatch, whenever we know what's going to happen. So I just found that interesting. We get that small little scene between Claire and Malva where Malva is shadowing Claire and they're looking through the microscope and everything. And then when Claire gets called away, Malva's like, no, I'm going with you. I understand that this is dangerous, but I know you feel called to be there and I do as well. So I'm going with you. That's really all we get to see of Malva and Claire. And I feel like we've had a few scenes throughout the season, but nothing to really make us grasp the bond that they have. And I think if we had been given more time to sit with them, that maybe that would have been a little bit more instantaneous of a a grasp once we get further into this episode and we see all of the things that happen. So once we flash out of that... It was a very heavy-handed, fine, you can come with me, but just remember, there's no cure. (laughs) And then we flash to all of the graves lining this new graveyard, all this fresh dirt with the wooden crosses. And it really gives us a good idea of how much time has passed and how ferociously this disease is spreading throughout the ridge and how dangerous it is. If you're going to condense the timeline like they did, it was a great way to show, hey, a lot of time has passed. This isn't just a couple hours later that we're talking several days time. So I did like that creatively. I obviously wasn't fond of just yada, yada, yada ying over a good portion of this massive event. But if you have to do it, I guess this is the way to do it. And so obviously the point that the writers were trying to get to was when Claire becomes ill. Rightfully so. It's a huge event and is literally Jamie's worst fear in life is losing Claire. Pretty much since the day that he realized he was in love with her, he realized that her calling put her in harm's way every single day. Her job is to help the sick, and he's constantly concerned for her welfare because he knows that there's the potential that one of these days she's going to contract an illness that could kill her because she's so compelled to help these people. Here it is. She's sick. She very well could die from this. What really 
irritated me is how stoic they chose to portray this and how very little of Jamie's reaction we got over the course of the epidemic. It was such a great opportunity to let Sam shine. And instead, we just get these worried glances and him sitting by her bed for 15 seconds. And that's it. And I was like, what? I was so upset. And I'm sorry if I'm dwelling on it, but it just really irritated me. I felt like they weren't using the dysentery outbreak to make a point about anything, really. They were using it as a stepping stone to get from where we were at the end of 605 to where we needed to be to cover the Malva accusation. And all of that stems from the what Claire originally assumed was a hallucination of her seeing Jamie and Malva standing at the window. Obviously, that turns out to have not been a hallucination, but it's really just serving as a catalyst. It's pushing the plot forward so that we can accomplish the main goal of this episode, which is Malva's reveal that she's pregnant and accusing Jamie of being the father of her child. After Claire wakes up and things start to kind of get on the up and up, we know she's going to survive. She goes and sees Tom. I really liked this scene because, A, I feel like Mark Lewis Jones did a really great job portraying Tom in this scene because he's got the perfect combination of righteous indignation, outrage, and horror. But I also think that there's a little bit of sympathy there and maybe a tiny bit of compassion. And it's hidden so well under his hard exterior that you really have to look for it. But I truly believe that it's in there in Mark's performance. And I think he does a really good job of showing Tom Christie to the world. He's a very complex character to portray. So I'm so glad they found him. He's really just perfect for this role. But I think that this scene between Tom and Claire really emphasizes the growing relationship, which seems kind of odd because I feel like the first three episodes of this season were intensely character-driven. Actually, probably through through episode four. The first four episodes were very character-driven. And then we get to five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing a dance count. Five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> and they're very plot-driven. They're just boom, 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 boom. And it's like you're constantly getting punched in the face and you don't know which way is up anymore. But we lose some of that personal feeling to it a lot of times. I think that there are personal moments in this episode, don't get me wrong, but like I said, just very plot intensive and that's hard to swallow sometimes. So this scene between Tom and Claire I mean, we know they have history, right? We've seen the whole hand surgery thing and we've seen how they interact. And he sent her that note about how disappointed he was in her and thought she was better than that for sending him that copy of Tom Jones and how appalling it was for talking about love and physical attraction. But nonetheless, whenever Tom realizes that Claire has had all of her hair whacked off, he has a physical reaction to that. And he was like, dear God. And she was like, oh, that. (laughs) And then she makes a comment about, oh, I thought you would have been happy about it because I'm not going about outraging the public with my brazen display of flowing locks. (laughs) But I think this is our first indication 
that Tom is actually quite fond of Claire because as much as he's putting on the face of how offended he is, especially when she asks for that fecal matter, which is just (laughs) his face is hilarious. He was like, how dare you ask such a thing? But then he ends the scene with saying, and I'm walking you back to your house. And if you want to ask me such offensive questions along the way, well, I guess I can't stop you. As much as he knows or feels like that should be his reaction to her imposing impersonal questions, he really likes her. And he's just not wanting to admit that to anybody, but he's drawn to her. So I just thought that was funny that we can see all of that byplay between the two of them. As much as they irritate each other sometimes, there's something about the other person that really draws them to each other, kind of like magnets. It's kind of cool. So like I said, this episode is very plot driven, but it also does have several interesting character moments, several really sweet scenes between Jamie and Claire. And there are two in particular back-to-back that I want to talk about. So the first one is when Claire gets back from her meeting with Tom. And Jamie is like, you're not allowed to kill yourself. Do I make myself clear? Which was a bit of a bittersweet moment for me. As funny as it is, it was so much more hilarious in the books. And I'm going to give you guys a little tidbit. So skip over the next couple of minutes if you don't want anything book-related, even though it's already been covered in the show. So in the books, Claire also sneaks out and goes to see Tom, and Tom brings her back. But Tom is treated as the conquering hero when he brings Claire back, and Jamie drags Claire upstairs, strips her of all of her clothes, puts her in the bed. She's about to pass out, so she's not really fighting back at this point. Strips her of all of her clothes, tucks her in bed, takes all of her clothes out, and as he's getting ready to leave, says, you are not allowed to kill yourself. Do I make myself clear? Like, takes all of her clothes so she literally cannot leave the bedroom because she's naked. And I just was like, that is so Jamie. Thinking outside the box, but making it perfectly clear that it's his way or the highway. And so this was very much a pared down, milder show Jamie moment. They kept the dialogue in there, but it lost a lot of the punch that Diana Gabaldon included in the scene for the book. That was one of my favorite scenes in the book. And so I just had to share it with you guys because it's not really a spoiler because it's already been covered in the show. I know I told you that if there's a scene in the books that I'm like, oh, well, I kind of was disappointed in this because blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying that the show was wrong for doing it that way because I do think that the characters that are portrayed on screen are inherently different from the characters in the books. I don't know that show version of Jamie, it would have really made sense for that, but definitely in the books was hilarious. But that sweet tone pairs nicely with the rest of that conversation. So I understand why they did it that way. They weren't going for a funny moment. They were going for a serious moment. In an episode that was already running long, it was an hour and 11 minutes where most Outlander episodes are under an hour. They couldn't include all of these things. So again, that's why I feel like they probably should have made this into two episodes so they could do it right. Because I've said this before, I don't care for half-assing things. (laughs) Include it, don't include it. But if you choose to include it, please just do it right. (laughs) So that's kind of my mantra when we're looking at these things. And I feel like this was one of those things where I'm like, "Eh, it almost could have been left out, to be honest. 
Anyway, so Jamie ends up sitting with Claire and explaining his feelings a little bit. And he says that when he was in the cave, the sight of the sun coming up every morning and going down every evening gave him comfort because it provided a sense of normalcy and the idea that the world kept turning and things kept moving. And despite whatever inner turmoil was going on, there was that comfort of the world still going about its business and that he gets that feeling listening to Claire rustle about in her surgery and cursing to herself. And he realizes that if she was no longer there or somewhere, the sun would no longer come up or go down. She is his son. She is the thing in his life that creates this sense of normalcy and comfort. That's why it scares him so much to lose her because he realizes that without her, the world doesn't keep spinning. His world stops the second she stops breathing. So I loved that scene of him just being completely honest with her in only a way that Jamie can talk to Claire and saying, look, you have to take care of yourself because I can't live without you. It's very sweet. But then it's also paired with another very sweet, very well-written scene that echoes across the rest of the episode. And that's the scene where they're laying in bed talking to each other about their virtues. Claire wants to know what Jamie loves about her. And he says, you're brave. You were always bolder than was safe. But now you're fierce as a badger and proud as Lucifer. And she's like, so you're saying I'm arrogant and ferocious. (laughs) Not exactly a list of womanly virtues. And they're just joking with each other in only a way that a long married couple or at least a couple that's been together for a very long time can. When you understand someone so perfectly that you can kind of tug at their ear or irritate them in the most teasing and adorable way. It's just cute and it's sweet and it's tender. He eventually ends up telling her, he says, okay, you really want to know what it is? She says, of course. And he was like, Above all the creatures in the world, you're faithful. And she says, so are you. It's quite a good thing, isn't it? When you look at that in the context of that particular scene, it's easy to take the word faithful and take it in the context of you would never cheat on me. And I have confidence in that. So that's what I see as your greatest virtue. But In reality, the word faithful and how they use that term doesn't really refer to that at all. Like, yes, that is part of it. But when you look at the grand scheme of how they talk to each other through the rest of this episode, faithful is saying, I believe in you no matter what. And you believe in me. And no matter what external forces are out there, I know that you will have confidence that you can trust me and that I'm not going to betray that trust. So when we get to the accusation scene, it shatters both of them. They're very thrown for a loop. They aren't really processing things at a quick rate of speed because they're just in such shock. And I think that it shocked a lot of people because we see scenes with Malva and Claire and Jamie 
Claire and Jamie love this young woman, this girl. They really kind of adore her because she's ambitious. She's intelligent. She's excited to learn. She has this thirst for knowledge and they're drawn to that kind of personality and they see how much potential she has, has all of these wonderful virtues. And we see that even in that scene, even though I'm not fond of the scene, when Jamie and Malva are talking in the kitchen while Claire is sick. The scene rubs me the wrong way because I'm like, oh yeah, this is and I'm being completely sarcastic here, this is a perfect time to have a shoot the breeze conversation between two random characters when Claire is upstairs fighting for her life. And it doesn't even really seem like either one of them are that upset about it. All of a sudden, we've got this random conversation about pranks being played and, oh, I heard your grandfather was the old fox. Is that true? And, you know, just having this seemingly casual conversation that doesn't really fit with the vibe of the episode. So that's why I didn't care for it. But I can see why they included it, because it gives us a good chance to see that Jamie actually is fond of Malva. But I don't think anybody actually thought that Jamie would have romantic intentions or try to pressure this young woman into having sex with him. He's committed to Claire. Hook, line, and sinker. Malva sees how kind Jamie is and how much of a great relationship Jamie and Claire have together. And she kind of covets that. She wants that to be her life. And she figures, you know, I'm pregnant. And if I'm going to end up being forced to marry somebody, it might as well be somebody like Jamie Fraser, who's going to treat me right. And so I think that starts her down a really wrong path, like a really wrong path. Yeah. It's just like pushing a boulder down a hill. Like you can't stop it once it's started. And I think she really does regret her actions. But at the same time, it's kind of too late, or at least she thinks it is. She thinks, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, as they say. So if you're not one of those people that kind of puts lots of dots together and assembles the puzzle that's being presented to you as you view. This might kind of blow your mind, but I don't really view it as a spoiler, what I'm about to say, because all the information has already been presented to us as viewers, and I'm literally just playing a game of connect the dots. So I apologize if this bursts anybody's bubble, but I'm about to explain what you're seeing on screen. So a couple of episodes ago, we saw Malva spying on Jamie and Claire while they were having sex, which explains to us how she knows where Jamie's scars are, even the ones that are intimate scars, like the long one running up his upper thigh, where he was cut at Culloden, the crescent-shaped one on his ribs, where Jack Randall's brand was cut off of him. It's not just the scars on his back that she knows about. So that explains that. So that's dot number one. Dot number two. The next episode, after the whole her spying on Jamie and Claire, we witnessed her cutting off the Sin Eater's fingers. What's she doing with that? Nothing good, let me tell you. So we know from her cutting off the Sin Eater's fingers that she is the person responsible for 
the venom of the north wind love charm that was found by all the girls at the riverside before Lizzie became ill a couple episodes ago. Dot number two was the mention from Bree of where's the sin eater? Nobody's seen him for a while. Um, Bree, he's dead and Malva's been hacking at his body for God knows how long. So that's dot number three. Dot number four happens when Claire wakes up and finds out that Claire and Tom were both sick during the time of the dysentery epidemic. However, neither one of them had dysentery. Instead of puking and having violent diarrhea and not being able to keep any food down and dying of dehydration, essentially, they had headaches fit to split the skull, as Tom describes them, disturbing dreams, and an extremely high fever with chills. So two very, very different diseases. And Claire, having a solid knowledge of pathology and how the spread of disease works, she's saying, wait a minute, it makes absolutely no sense that Tom and I have not seen each other for a while, like a while. And yet somehow we contracted the same disease that nobody else contracted. So what's the common denominator of all of this information? Malva Christie. That's the common denominator. That's the dots connected for you. It's a very complex situation. We don't have all the answers. We don't know all the motivating factors. And so it's not really a spoiler. It's just saying, yeah, that's what you're looking at. Malva's responsible for this whole mess. Now, the why of it is still a big blank that I think will be answered at the beginning of season seven for you guys. But yeah, she's responsible for a lot of havoc being caused. And Claire, I think despite the fact that she doesn't want to believe it, she knows. So that kind of sucks because she loves Malva so much. But it's like Claire says at the end of this episode, after everything goes down with the accusation, she says, I'm sorry. And Malva's like, you're the one apologizing to me. And she says, I'm sorry for whatever you're going through that has made you so desperate that you felt like you had to do this. Claire's compassion and sense of empathy really breaks Malva. It breaks her resolve and you can see like she just busts into tears and she's like, help me. This can never be. And then her brother comes out and interrupts and Malva goes back into stone cold defense mode. And it's not that Malva agrees with what Alan is saying. It's she's in self-preservation mode. And now that she's been forced to confess to the congregation that she's pregnant with Jamie's child and all of that, she doesn't have anybody except for her brother and not even really her father. Like her father will support her because it's his job to support her, but it's not necessarily his choice. She's basically hedging her bets and backing the horse that is going to carry her across the finish line, which is Alan at this point, And that sucks. I'll be glad when all the information is out there for the world to see, because then I can talk about this freely and not have to worry about spoilers, because it's kind of killing me. Like, there were so many nuanced performances in this episode that I was like, oh, man. And I'm like, I can't talk about it, and it's killing me. <laughs> so just know I really am not spoiling things for you guys. Like, there's so much more that I could talk about. I'm just connecting the dots for what's already there, I promise. 
when Malva comes out with it and says that Jamie is the father of her child, Sam's face, oh my God, it was so good. He has this blank, uncomprehending look on his face. He's like, what? (laughs) Then he's like, what? (laughs) It was so perfect. So good. Everybody was firing on all cylinders. Katrina was fantastic. This is going to sound weird because I don't really condone violence, but if there was ever a situation where it was okay to hit a pregnant woman, I would say this is it. (laughs) When you've got a young woman accusing your husband of being the father of her child and she just goes on and on and on about how this happened and you just want her to shut up and Claire slaps her across the face. Out of everybody in that room, Jamie was the most shocked that Claire hauled off and hit her. And you can see it in his body language. He swings around like, what the fuck? And Tom just stands there and takes it. He's like, yeah, she deserved that one. (laughs) He views that as justice. Again, we come back to what we've learned about Tom Christie. Justice is the backbone of his world. He's got God and he's got justice. So he's not going to stop Claire from taking what's rightfully hers, just as if Jamie really is the father of this baby, he expects Jamie to step up and take care of it and take care of Malva because they're his responsibility now. You have to kind of see all the underlying motivations of these characters to fully understand this scene. I just thought to myself when I was watching this, I was like, this must have been an exhausting day for everybody involved because there's so much emotion. And then you have to, when the director yells cut, take a deep breath, take a break, reset and do it all again and get yourself that worked up again. I mean, you think about it, Jessica Reynolds literally spent the entire day in heaving body racking sobs. Like, my God, there's stunts involved because Jamie hits Alan twice. And so you, you've got that kind of stuff going on and the emotional turmoil and the sheer size of the scene. I don't know how many pages this scene is, but it's a solid like 10, 15 minutes on the screen. And so that's a lot of dialogue to remember. So I imagine this was just a very exhausting scene to act. Overall, I felt like what was most intriguing about this scene was the fact that Jamie is totally gaslighted. And you can see it. And I remember hearing an interview with Sam where he was talking about this, how, yes, Jamie knows that he didn't do this, but hearing Malva talk about what quote unquote happened and seeing how upset she is and seeing how everybody else seemingly believes her, he starts to wonder if he's lost his mind, if he was really that drunk, if he was so twisted in grief that he doesn't remember doing this. And then obviously he snaps back into it and he was like, no, I would never do that. But for a split second, you see that doubt on his face. And even worse, you see the horror on his face when he realizes Claire is getting sucked into this. And there's a portion of this story and he doesn't know how much of it Claire believes. And so I think that more than anything horrifies him. And I love that after Claire storms out, Malva's like, your wife believes me. And he says, my wife has better sense and gets in her face. I'm like, she is a tiny little girl and Sam is huge. And oh my God, I would be so intimidated. He can be intense. It's just, it's a crazy scene. That's followed up with 
the scene with Jamie and Claire out in the stables, which I think, despite the fact that I'm not entirely crazy about this episode, this is probably actually one of my favorite scenes of the season because it really kind of gave me season two intense conversation vibes. I don't feel like we've had that flavor of conversation since maybe First Wife in season three. I think that was the last time that we had like a really intense, what are we doing here moment between Jamie and Claire. I like it when Sam and Kat get the opportunity to have some drama in their performance. And it's not necessarily that they're fighting, but there's a lot going on that they need to sort out. I think Jamie's biggest fear here is that Claire believes Malva. What we saw at the end of the accusation scene was how Jamie kind of just drifts off and zones out for a minute almost is what it looks like. And he just looks defeated kind of because he's realizing that it's a he said, she said moment. There's no proof that he's not the father of Malva's child and there's no proof that he is, but people are going to believe Malva. And he understands that and he realizes there's not a damn thing he can do about it. That feeling transfers over to his conversation with Claire because Claire left. And that's what he's saying. He was like, you don't believe her, do you? You ran out. You you walked away. And she's like, yeah, because I might have bloody well killed her if I had stayed, which I understand completely. I would have been tempted to murder her myself. Like, good Lord. But it doesn't look good. And Jamie needed Claire there. He needed her to stand behind him and say, I know my husband would never do this, but she didn't. And so I think that that only fueled the fire in Malva and Tom and Alan. When they get out to the stable, Jamie questions whether she believes him or not. She says, you know, you don't seem to have a lot of faith in my faith in you. And this is where we get that first reference to what they really meant about, of all the creatures on earth, you're faithful. because. Here we are. And Jamie says, if I didn't have a great deal of Assassinac, I wouldn't be here. So if I didn't think that there was a very good chance that you either believe me or would believe me at the end of this conversation, I wouldn't have even bothered coming out here to talk to you. This is kind of the overarching theme of the rest of this episode, or one of them, is the idea that no matter what, Jamie and Claire believe each other and they hold fast to that surety that they can trust one another. There's been a lot of questions raised about why in God's name Jamie chose this moment to reveal to Claire that he had actually slept with Mary McNabb and why it was even that big of a deal given the fact that Claire already knows about Jamie sleeping with Geneva and that he has a son because of it. Why was it necessary to throw this into the conversation here? So I'll give you my two cents on it. So we're coming off the heels of this whole Jamie being accused of sleeping with Malva. There are three specific instances where Jamie's either been accused of or has slept with another woman other than Claire. The first was Mary, the second was Geneva, and now we've got Malva. So Jamie is saying, no, I didn't sleep with Malva, but I did sleep with this woman named Mary. Why is it significant? Because for Jamie, the emotional attachment of sex really is the defining factor on how important it is to him. Like Jamie told 
Claire about Geneva and about William. And that was an instance of sex that wasn't emotional for him. He wasn't emotionally attached to Geneva. He was blackmailed into it. It didn't have any sort of impact on who he was emotionally. So he already came clean about that kind of situation. And now here we are with finding out that he slept with Mary. And this was a very different situation from Malva or Geneva in that this was an emotional decision for him. He slept with Mary and it impacted who he was moving forward as a result of it, not because she got pregnant and that's what impacted his life, but simply because of that interaction between them. He says, she said she'd seen you with me, Claire. She kent the look of true love when she saw it. It wasn't in her mind to betray that. She gave me a small thing. It was, and it was me. She gave me tenderness. I hope I gave her the same. This is an interaction between two people that haven't known physical love in a long time. Jamie had been living in a cave for like seven years at this point. Mary was widowed. They needed that physical interaction. They needed the comfort of another person. And it helps to keep them whole is how Jamie described it. That interaction helped him to keep himself together as he went off and turned himself into the British. So that had a profound impact on him moving forward. And so for him to share that with Claire, that personal thing, that's why he hadn't told her about it previously, because it was an instance of having sex with someone that meant something to him. And he was ashamed that he'd had any sort of interaction with another woman that wasn't Claire and had that sort of feeling. And how do you tell your wife that? It's much easier to come out and tell her, yeah, in a moment of weakness, I slept with someone else and it didn't mean anything. It's a lot easier to have that conversation to be like, look, there's no emotional attachment to this. It was just physical versus a situation where you really are breaking down your walls and sharing a part of yourself with someone. And that's what Jamie was afraid to tell Claire is how would he explain it so that she would understand? And she does understand, but it was a moment of him being very much afraid that she wouldn't. And so if he could share something like that, that he was afraid to share with her because of the potential impact it would have on their marriage, then she should 100% believe him when he says he didn't sleep with Malva because if he had, there wouldn't have been any emotional attachment involved. That's why he chose that moment to reveal him sleeping with Mary McNabb. Now, the other half of it is, is that, yeah, Claire believes him and all of that, but it's not just because of the transparency and honesty between them and that trust, that unbreakable bond that she has with Jamie. She also believes him because she saw what happened as a result of Jamie sleeping with Geneva, the conception of a child, and how Jamie very much still holds on to being a father to that child, even though it's from a distance, he still makes sure that he's well taken care of and still is involved in his life, even though William doesn't realize it. Claire realizes as an extension of that, that Jamie could never walk away from a child of his blood, no matter how it came into the world. And William is a prime example of that. So it's really an instance of look at these two instances where something like this has happened and what's happened as a result of that. And you really begin to understand why Claire didn't ever really doubt Jamie at all. 
whenever we get to the end of this episode, we get a couple of cute scenes between Brie and Roger where we really see how strong they are as a couple. And the one in particular that I really loved was after the accusation scene when it cuts to Brie and Roger and they're walking through the woods and Brie goes, damn, Mrs. Bug, it'll be all over the ridge by now. Two things that I loved about this scene. The first was that I felt we really got to explore Brie a little bit as a character. She's one that's kind of a mystery. We don't ever really get much information on what makes her tick and how her past has affected who she is as a person. And we're starting to pull the layers back on her a little bit. And this scene, even though it was super short, was actually a really good opportunity for us to see that. She talks about how her parents' divorce and her father's infidelity has impacted her ability to really trust Jamie. Roger, on the other hand, we get an opportunity to see him in Jamie's corner backing him up. And he's like, Brie, you know he would never do this. Jamie is an honorable man and he loves your mother. And Brie goes, that's the thing. I would have sworn daddy was too. Brie is having a difficult time trusting what she knows to be true because she's been given reason to doubt it before. And so I love that scene for those two reasons, that we really get an inside look into Brie and Roger. But there's another scene after Jamie and Roger get back from the Provincial Congress where we see Brie and Roger in juxtaposition to Jamie and Claire. And Jamie and Claire are very much giving each other the sanitized version of what's happened over the past two months. They're not giving the other person the grisly details. They don't want the other person's quote-unquote great experience tainted by the shit that they've been dealing with. Because of that, they're not really being honest with each other. But then it's interconnected with the scene between Brie and Roger where they're having very real talk about it. And they're like, oh, yeah, there were rumors swirling all over the place while we were at Provincial Congress because somehow everybody knew by the time we got there what had happened on the ridge. And then Bree's talking about how all the settlers have been so terrible to Claire and basically treating her like a pariah, which pisses me the hell off. I can't stand the Fisher folk because of how they treat Jamie and Claire. Like, yeah, I know that even if you believe that Jamie is the father of Malva's child, yeah, he screwed up. But at the same time, he's still your landlord. And him and Claire literally gave the shirt off their backs to these people and made sure that they had shelter and clothes and food when they came to the ridge and have taken care of them. And now all of a sudden, they're just treating them like straight up dog shit. And I think that it's like Malva said, there were a lot of whispers that Claire is a witch anyway. So people didn't really like her. And the only thing that was keeping them at bay was their fear and respect for Jamie. And now that Jamie effed up and he's kind of out of the way that gives them free reign to treat Claire the way that they've always wanted to treat her in the first place so it just makes me mad it makes me so mad and I can't stand the Fisher folk and yeah so we get to the end with Malva's death which was equally surprising in the books and the show I felt like it was just like Holy smokes, that happened. But I felt like it was very clever in the artistry of this episode because 
the death of a mother and child bookends. So we get the death of Mrs. McNeil and her baby girl at the beginning of this episode with the dysentery outbreak. And then the world turns upside down for the second time. The episode ends with the death of Malva and her child. So very cleverly done there. And we'll talk about Malva's death and the implications of that more in the next episode because that's very intensely what 607 is about. But I talked about in the beginning of this episode some of the writing artistry and the creativeness that I loved about this episode. So I'll make sure to talk about this now because there's quite a bit of it. First off, I wanted to mention the parallel between this episode and Monsters and Heroes, particularly in that Jamie almost dies, Claire almost dies. We see how the other struggles with that potential passing of their life partner. And we also get that echoed in their conversations with, you tried to die on me, didn't you? So I thought that was really cute. Plus, we get to see kind of how everybody else is struggling with it. And maybe that's why they felt like we didn't need to see as much detail as what was happening with the dysentery epidemic and Claire being sick because we saw how they were all dealing with it with Jamie. But I don't know. I still really would have liked to seen it. So I don't know that I'm a big fan of that choice. But maybe that's why they made that decision. Second off, the title, The World Turned Upside Down, is very much a theme that carries on through this episode. So first off, we've got the world turning upside down with the dysentery epidemic. Lots of people dying across the ridge and not really anything they can do to fix it. Everything was hunky-dory on the ridge and then all of a sudden disease swept through and all hell broke loose. Then we kind of course correct. We get these few really sweet scenes between Claire and Brie, Claire and Jamie. We get a funny scene between Claire and Tom. And then Malva's accusation and the world turns upside down again. It's funny because we only think about this being the actual events that are turning everything on its head and creating a complete 180 in our main characters' lives. But then whenever Jamie and Claire have their whole conversation in the stable and Claire's saying, I don't belong here. Bree, Roger, they don't belong here. And Jemmy shouldn't be here. But we're all here because I loved you more than the life that I had. And because I believed that you loved me in the same way. Yes, we've got the epidemic and we've got Malva's accusation that are these causes of turmoil, but you also have to look at it as all of these characters are here together because Claire decided a while ago that she was going to turn her world upside down and go back for Jamie. And as a result, it was just one giant snowball effect of Brian and Roger coming and then them having Jemmy and now this new baby. So it's created this whole other life. And then you've got the physical manifestation of the world being upside down just in how this episode starts because the very first shot of this episode is the camera showing on the reflection of water outside the church window as Roger gives his sermon. And then the camera completely slowly pans all the way around and does a 180 so that it's centered on the congregation. The world righted itself, but is technically upside down from where it was. So I thought that was a very clever use of camera work as well. The other major thing that I want to discuss before we call it a day is the 
theme of dream versus reality in this episode. So it kind of pairs nicely with the title of this episode as well, because we deal with a couple of different circumstances where we're not really sure what happened. Obviously, I talked about Jamie's gaslighting and the accusation, and he has that moment of doubt where he's like, did this really happen? Like, was I really this drunk? What? And then you're like, obviously, no, no, I didn't do it. But he had that moment of doubt. We've got Claire with her initial fever dream and how that impacted her. And she vividly remembers that dream of holding her own heart in her hands, of seeing a snake in the house and how Jamie says, I promise you that any snake that crosses our threshold will lose his head before it hits the stairs. That didn't happen. And Claire's dream ends up being reality in that there is a snake in the house and it does pose a very real threat to her family. Her holding her heart outside of her body symbolizes the amount of heartbreak that she's about to go through. In her doubt over Jamie, even if it's a split second of doubt, the loss of her adopted daughter in Malva and her separation from her community on the ridge as they treat her as a pariah after everything that unfolds with Malva. It's all very symbolic and interesting, and I know a lot of people didn't care for it, and I didn't really like the way that it was edited, but I liked the symbology of it all, so I thought that was interesting. But the real dream versus reality that is going to roll over nicely into next week, and we can talk about it more then, is Claire's ether dream, because it's very much a manifestation of everything that Claire is thinking and desiring. Like she wants to do Malva harm. Like there's this dark streak in her that's mad at Malva. And as much as she wants to be sympathetic and compassionate, she just is having a really hard time burying that frustrated, murderous rage in her. When she's in her ether dream, she threatens Malva and Malva's taunting her. And then she goes out in the garden to find Malva murdered. And so that's kind of the debate. Was it really an unconscious dream or was it Claire hallucinating? What really happened? There's no line really between dream and reality here. We're not sure what occurred at the end of this episode. So in a way, it's like the world is coming in and out of focus, not necessarily completely flipping upside down, but you're not sure which way's up. I guess. So I like how it's all very much every single part of this episode is almost disorienting in kind of plot overload, how things are shot, how things are written, the things that you're getting with all of our characters and how we're seeing the world through their eyes in a confused or compromised state. So it's all very interesting and all fits very well with the title. So I actually really did agree with that title choice. Sometimes I'm like, I don't really know why that episode is called that or couldn't they come up with something better? But honestly, I think this one was spot on. Alrighty, guys, that covers my analysis for the day. Performance of the episode this week was Jessica Reynolds because anybody that can straight up sob for a whole scene, which probably took a whole day to film, has my respect. And then add on that sinister dreamscape thing that we had going on in Claire's ether dream 
That was nuts. And we saw so many different sides to Malva. It was really great. And I think that Jessica really shined this episode. And of course, Katrina was fantastic as well, especially in that final scene where she finds Malva and she performs the emergency C-section. I am just floored by Kat's performance every time I see that. Like, I literally have no notes on that section because I couldn't take my eyes away from the screen long enough to write notes about it because she's so compelling to watch. So Kat gets my honorable mention this week. The quote of the episode for me was kind of hard to find because as much as there was some good dialogue, there wasn't a lot of like one-liners or anything that I really was in love with. But I did like the quote from Jamie that says, if you were no longer there or somewhere, then the sun would no longer come up or go down. Because I really did think that that was poetic and a great way of expressing your love for someone and how your life wouldn't continue if you lost them. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up what I have to say on 606, The World Turned Upside Down. But as always, I open it up to you guys to let me know what you thought of this week's episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Regina Geisert says, I feel that the dysentery storyline didn't get quite enough time, but considering the time constraints they had to tell certain plot points, it worked out well for the show. I wasn't surprised by Malva's accusation in the show, but I was when I read the book. Honestly, I don't necessarily think there's one appropriate way to react to something like that. I personally feel I would react in a similar fashion to Claire. Claire thought very highly of her young apprentice and was growing very fond of her. Then to have her throw an accusation like that and name her husband, whom she risked so much for, her reaction, while it appears over the top, probably could have been much worse. Oh yeah, totally. I don't blame Claire at all for her reaction because, man, like, you trust somebody so much and then to just be like, yeah, we slept together and to announce it in front of a room full of people and just, and then to have the audacity to be like, we didn't mean to hurt you. Really, what did you think you were doing? Really? Anyway, yeah, so I don't blame Claire at all. And I don't think it was out of character either because she's very impulsive and very fiery. Not as fiery as Jamie, but holy smokes, yeah, I probably would have slapped her too. Kathy Murray Hosford says, I think the dysentery story was way too short and not explained well enough for me. As far as Malva is concerned, that should have been at least two more episodes worth, but I get it, COVID and all. But I can't get over her accusations she made about Jamie. That wraps up listener comments on... Saturday, October 1st, Angela is coming back to discuss season six superlatives. That will be live on my Facebook page, TSF Obsassnax, on Saturday, October 1st at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Also, if you're looking for something to fill the void during Droughtlander and you like time travel romance reading and the Sassanac Files, then make sure to check out Droughtlander Book Club. That is also hosted on my page, TSF of Sassanacs. This book club is going to be broken into two parts, but I am covering the Celtic Brooch series by Catherine Lowry Logan. So we're getting ready to ramp up to the Sapphire Brooch. And part one is going to be on October 22nd at 4 p.m. That's a Saturday. And then part two is going to be on October 29th, which is also a Saturday at 4 p.m. If you are not a member of TSF Obsassanax, make sure to head over to Facebook, request to join, 
fill out all three of the admission questions and agree to follow the rules and somebody will approve your request shortly. Those podcasts are lives, but if you don't want to join TSF Obsessed Snacks, no worries. They will also be posted as podcasts normally within a week of the live events occurring. Alrighty, guys, I'm signing off for the day. I'll talk to you next week whenever I discuss 607, the penultimate episode of season six, Sticks and Stones. You guys have a great week. Stay safe out there, and I will chat at you later. Bye.